Well, the reason the bank collapsed is because of woke. <laughs> what do you mean woke? How did that collapse a bank? It just did. Woke. D-E-I, E-S-G, P-O-C, A-O-C, B-E-T. The list is endless, and the list is woke. Yes, it is. And there's your problem right there. It's just all too woke. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California on KFOI, and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. You know about uh, reading that list, I think... Half of us on the left coast are getting slammed with storms. The other half on the right coast are getting slammed with storms. <laughs> True. Oh, it'd be nice to be in fly, flyover country today. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on the Internet. So the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk and most of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com and your occasional weatherman. Thank you very much <laughs> for joining us today. Although it isn't really flyover country, both of us are from flyover country. I know, so that's cold. why we can say it. We have never said it, except today. Oh, well, now we're in trouble. <laughs> Anyway, welcome to the broadcast. Glad to have you here wherever you are, whatever weather you are dealing with on this uh, delightful March day. With the federal closures and now takeover of a few of what are considered to be medium-sized regional banks over the past several days, most notably the tech startup-heavy Silicon Valley Bank on the West Coast and the cryptocurrency-heavy Signature Bank on the East uh, well, things are obviously at a precarious moment for the banking industry and the larger effect that sort of thing has on the overall U.S. and potentially even global economy. Now, I am not an expert in this stuff, so please take uh, what I say with only slightly fewer grains of salt than you might from actual so-called experts, <laughs> you know, the folks who have gotten all of this so wrong for so many years and who get paid tens of millions of dollars, apparently, to be wrong about it, in fact. Yes, I'm talking to you, Jim Cramer on CNBC and all of those other experts who have been paid millions to give their followers horrendous advice for years. I think it was just a week or so ago that Cramer was on 
the TV machine telling viewers that Silicon Valley Bank was a terrific investment. Oof. Seriously. So, yeah, I'm not them. But the sense that I get is that these bank failures will be mostly contained, I think, without affecting the broader market, as we saw happen when some huge banks went under during the mortgage crisis and the subsequent banking crisis and global recession back in 2008. But again, I'm no expert, so don't listen to, uh, to me. Well, listen to me, but do not take my investment advice. <laughs> Anyway, that this is just my sense uh, from reading a lot on all of this, that it's not going to cascade, but we will see. Nonetheless, perhaps playing it safe or maybe knowing much more than I know, Moody's Investor Service cut its outlook for the entire U.S. banking sector on Tuesday after placing six U.S. banks on review for potential credit rating downgrades. So they haven't downgraded them, but they're on a list. I guess they're on the uh, you're on notice list uh, <laughs> for potential downgrade in the wake of last week's collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The credit rating firms Moody's said it expects more banks will come under pressure following S SVB's failure, particularly those with large hordes of uninsured deposits and long-term treasury bonds that have crumbled in value. So to try and decode some of that uninsured deposits, that would essentially be those accounts that are uh, more than 250000 which is the maximum amount that is guaranteed to be covered from loss by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, that works great for the bulk of depositors in most banks who do not have that much in their accounts. But in cases like SVB, where the bulk of their customers are these large venture capital groups and the tech startups that they fund, most of those accounts have far more than 250000 in them, which is what has been threatened by SVB's closure. Though over the weekend... As you may have heard, the federal government said that all of those deposits would be backstopped, would be protected. In other words, if needed, would be bailed out using a fund that banks pay into for just such an emergency as this. In theory, it doesn't come from taxpayers. It comes from the banks who pay directly into this fund. Now, there's supposedly enough money in that fund to cover all of the depositors' accounts at places like SVB and Signature, at least presuming a bunch of other banks do not fail as well. As we noted yesterday, President Biden has said that those customers in those uh, banks that have failed will be made whole. Uh, though not, and this is different from the 2008 banking crisis, not the bank executives and the bank shareholders, the owners of the bank. They will not be made whole with any sort of government backstop or bailout, etc. We'll see if that it turns if out to holds. be the case. But, yeah. you know, but, you know, those who screwed up will not be protected, unlike the depositors who, in this case, do not really appear to have done anything wrong at all to be the cause of this bank failure. As a matter of fact, I was watching Rachel Maddow, I, I think it was last night, who said something like, oh, SVB had lost $2 billion, which is not actually my understanding of it. 
Essentially, after some bad bets that were made by the bank by purchasing some bonds at very low interest rates before the Fed then began raising interest rates in recent months in hopes of tamping down inflation, well, those bonds became worth much less once interest rates were raised by the Fed and then some folks were told to be nervous about SVB's financials in all of this, and they essentially made a run on the bank, and the bank didn't have enough cash on hand at the moment to cover that bank run. It was a liquidity problem, not a money problem, so to speak, if you understand that difference. Yeah, I mean, basically, SB SVB was banking on the idea that interest rates would remain low. They didn't. And so suddenly, SVB did not have enough money on hand when the bank run began. When everybody s suddenly started to ask for it. Now, they probably could have come up with the cash. They have uh, their worth that much cash, but they didn't have that time when d depositors were demanding to get it back. So they didn't have time. De depositors wanted the money right now. SVB tried to uh, meet that uh, demand. They sold a bunch of their bonds, but it still they still came up about $2 billion short at the moment that they had to pay off these uh, depositor requests. That is different than losing $2 billion at least as I understand it, and as Matto somewhat misexplained it, I believe. In any event, while the bank was not going bankrupt, it had a lot of assets. It had a short-term liquidity problem that eventually led to that federal takeover. After interest rates uh, by the Fed had been you know, zero or next to zero for those banks to be able to borrow for so many years, they could always just borrow more money for cheap when, when needed. When interest rates then rose suddenly, thanks to Jerome Powell and the Fed using this trick in order to try and cool inflation by pushing the economy into recession, well, banks like SVB no longer had access to that cheap money to pay off their short-term needs because they were investing depositors' funds instead of holding on to them for such an instance such as this. I'll get back to that in a moment. But Moody's said that it expects similar pressure on the banking sector to persist as the Fed continues to hike interest rates in hopes of combating inflation. The good news, Moody said, if you believe them, is that America's banking system is generally healthy, according to Moody's. Uh, it has enough cash and liquid assets on, on hand to withstand an economic downturn. That is likely due to reform of at least the big banks after the 2008 crisis, requiring them to have enough cash on hand for such a downturn. The bad news for, for banks, anyway, is that U.S. regulators may require them to hold more capital after SVB's rapid failure particularly the smaller, though still huge, but the smaller so-called regional banks like SVB, who in 2018 lobbied the federal government to allow them to make riskier bets than the Dodd-Frank reform bill, which was adopted after the 2008 crisis, would have allowed. Those are the banks, the ones that Donald Trump lifted regulations for that are now in danger of failing for these various reasons. As CNN notes today, SVB was brought down by a bank run, but its exposure to long-term Treasury bonds that tumbled in value during the Fed's historic rate hike campaign 
aggravated the liquidity problem. Moody's predicts the newly uh, stressed operating environment for banks could lead uh, some to lend less, to buy back fewer shares or cut dividends to preserve capital in case of emergency, which is probably a good idea, a good thing for the economy, even if it means that the money supply for big businesses and startups will get tighter for a while. And maybe some shareholders might get slightly less in returns. At the uh, same time, as the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics announced today, inflation has now cooled a bit, cooled to an annual rate of 6% in any event in February year over year. That's down from January's 6.4% year-over-year level. Energy costs con uh, continued to fall, with prices 5.2% higher in February year-over-year, year, compared with an 8.7% increase in January. Food prices also cooled down a bit. Markets responded mostly positively to the inflation data on Tuesday with the Dow and the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 all trending up very strongly, bigly, if you will, along with, yes, the bank stocks. <laughs> because, of course. So all of this, uh, as as noted, is... Um, you know, is is threatening a precariousness of the moment in the banking industry, none of which had to happen and likely would not have happened. But for the loosening of the regulations during the Trump administration and Trump appointed Fed, uh, Fed chair Jerome Powell's very light touch in enforcing any of the regulations that were put in place after 2008, even for the banks who didn't manage to get their regulations uh, lifted back in 2018 as far as how much cash they had to have on hand and how risky their uh, investment bets could be with depositors' money. Senator Elizabeth Warren, the economics professor who came to national prominence during the last banking crisis before then becoming a senator, she predicted all of this would happen back in 2018 when Congress, including some Democrats and uh, all the Republicans and Donald Trump, lifted the regulations on these so-called mid-sized regional banks that are now failing, some of them, because they had no guardrails over these risky bets with depositors' money. Writing in the New York Times on Monday, the Massachusetts senator said, uh, quote, no one should be mistaken about what unfolded over the past few days in the U.S. banking system. These recent bank failures are the direct of leaders in Washington weakening the financial rules. Yep, they did it again. And, and who knew what would happen? As she writes, in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, Congress passed the Dodd-Frank Act to protect consumers and ensure that big banks could never again take down the economy and destroy millions of lives. Wall Street chief executives and their armies of lawyers and lobbyists hated this law. They spent millions trying to defeat it, she writes, and when they lost, they spent millions more trying to weaken it. Greg Becker, the chief executive of Silicon Valley Bank, was one of the many high-powered executives, she says, who lobbied Congress to weaken the law 
In 2018, the big banks won. With support from both parties, President Donald Trump signed a law to roll back critical parts of Dodd-Frank. Regulators, including the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell, then made a bad situation worse, letting financial institutions load up on risk. Banks like SVB, which had become the 16th largest bank in the country before regulators shut it down last Friday. Remember, this is supposed to be uh, a medium size, a re just a regional bank. It had been the 16th largest bank in the country before it was shut down. Well, the uh, banks like SVB got relief from stringent requirements in 2018, basing their claim on the laughable assertion that banks like them weren't actually big and therefore did not need strong oversight. How'd that work out? Warren writes, I fought against these changes. On the eve of the Senate vote in 2018, I warned, quote, Washington is about to make it easier for the banks to run up risk, make it easier to put our, con our constituents at risk, make it easier to put American families in danger just so the CEOs of these banks can get a new corporate jet and add another floor to their new corporate headquarters. I wish I'd been wrong, she says, but on Friday, SVB executives were busy paying out congratulatory bonuses just hours before the FDIC rushed in to take over the failing institution, leaving countless businesses and nonprofits with accounts at the bank alarmed that they won't be able to pay their bills or their employees. She then goes on to explain what went wrong, how it must be fixed, specifically by reversing that 2018 bill that Trump signed that did away with uh, oversight requirements for these so-called small, medium-sized, but actually huge banks after Trump had claimed that Dodd-Frank was just suffocating them, suffocating the industry with regulations. All of it, of course, just like the Obama-era regulations for railroads that the Trump administration ended up reversing, only to see avoidable derailment uh, disasters in Ohio and elsewhere that, well, you know, regulation's bad. I guess that's the, the lesson that Republicans are trying to hoax you into. Regulation's bad until you become the victim of a toxic rail disaster or a bank closure that could have been avoided. Warren uh, concludes her Times opinion piece by noting, quote, these bank failures were entirely avoidable if Congress and the Fed had done their jobs and kept strong banking regulations in place since 2018. SVB and Signature are now gone, and now Washington must act quickly to prevent the next crisis. Do you think they will? <laughs> well, the fact that they do this every single time, Republicans do this every single time mm -hmm. they get into power. I mean, they pretty much engineer a crisis. They take all of the work that was done, say, right after the financial crisis mm -hmm. of 2008, which was caused by banking deregulation in part. They repealed them when they got into power. And here we are again. Here we are again. Now, the sad part is. Though you're smart enough to listen to the broadcast, so you get all of this good information, at least half the country is yet again being lied to about the current 
crisis. So, you know, why would they demand uh, any, you know, such action to right the ship from Washington when they're being told it's something completely different? It is not what I just explained to you. Instead, here is what, in case you're wondering, this is what viewers of Fox News are being told is the problem with banks like SVB. Part of the problem was is that this was one of those woke banks. They were one of the most woke banks in uh, their in their quest for uh, the ESG type uh, type policy. This bank, they're so concerned with DEI and politics and all kinds of stuff. This bank, um, Silicon Valley Bank, they had been focused on a lot of these social issues in the in the last weeks and months leading yeah, up to this month collapse. Long LGBTQ. Um, month of activities <laughs> yeah. just before the bank collapsed. I think the senior <laughs> vice president of risk management at the yes. bank was was heavily focused on LGBTQ plus programs. The female head of risk management spent a lot of time spearheading what critics would call woke programs such as a safe space for coming out stories. Oh, the female head, the lady the banker. Lady banker. Those yeah. ladies not so good with the monies, well, I guess. Oh, you know. Yes. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's what they're hearing on Fox. It, that's the reason why the bank failed. It's too woke. That was the problem. That's why the feds had to take them over. They're just too woke. Now, <clears throat> if Washington adopted rules that would, you know, regulations to prevent wokeness at the bank, well, we could stop this sort of thing from happening in the future, right? It would never... I'm sure I don't have to explain to you how wokeness played a key role in all of this, right? After all, you heard in that clip there, among others in that montage, Ron DeSantis, the greatest enemy of wokeness who has ever lived, as the governor of Florida, where he has told us woke goes to die, you heard him citing things like ESG and DEI and LGBTQ and other <laughs> acronyms that, following their successful campaign to freak people out about CRT, which stands for critical race theory, which, by the way, nobody called it CRT before Fox News got a hold of it and needed a shorthand way to describe it so people would understand it even less than almost everyone already did. Since I guess they think CRT went so well for them, they had to come up with a bunch of other acronyms, DEI and ESG. Do you know what those are? If not, don't feel bad. It's, it's just, you know, more fake villains that they're trying to come up with in order to prevent Republicans from having to do anything about actual problems. For the record, DEI... That's that's one of them that Ron DeSantis hates. Oh, this DEI is just killing us. That stands for diversity, equity and inclusion. For example, if you go uh, over to the Web page on the Fox Networks website, Web page called foxcareers.com, they have a page that is called, yes, literally diversity and inclusion where they brag about, quote, building a diverse and inclusive Fox. Quote, we live in a diverse world with different ideas and different perspectives that come together to spark new ideas and make great things happen. That means reflecting the diversity of the world around us. It's critical to our company's success, and we're deeply committed to diversity and inclusion, including attracting, retaining, and promoting diverse talent 
across our company. Yes, that's from the Fox website where you will hear them every few minutes. You can, you know, mark it uh, like uh, like a clock complaining about DEI. I hope that doesn't mean Fox News is going to collapse next. (laughs) Actually, I hope it does mean that, but for a completely different reason when Fox collapses. I don't think DEI will be the reason why. Uh, That other acronym, uh, I think we talked a little bit about a week or so ago. They mentioned ESG. Yep. Environmental Social Governance. Is that uh, correct? Yeah, that's just that that investing framework that helps investment managers include things that are important to making sure that over time your investments do well. Yeah, well, that's also been uh, determined, declared to be an (laughs) enemy by Ron DeSantis and Fox News because... Acronyms are bad, and I guess they are destroying the nation or something. Even if none of it has to do with the banking failures of the past and the precarious moment that we are now in, uh, now that you not that you'd understand any of this if you watched Fox, sadly. You would think it's all because of wokeness and DEI and ESG and LGBTQ. Meanwhile... Uh, Like the uh, GOP Fox News not very successful effort at running last year in the midterms by pretending to be tough on crime. Well, the idea that they will now run against woke in 2024, that's got everyone excited, whatever it may mean. But it may not be quite as effective for them outside the DEI ESG Fox News media bubble. Uh, It may not be as successful as Republicans and Ron DeSantis in particular seem to think it is right now. Seem to think that if you add the word woke to it, why everyone will be against it. As Susan Page reported at USA Today last week, Republican presidential hopefuls are vowing to wage a war on woke. But... A new USA Today Ipsos poll finds a majority of Americans are inclined to see the word as a positive attribute, not a negative one. Oops, guess they got to work harder. 56% of those surveyed said the term means, quote, to be informed, educated on, and aware of social injustices. That includes not only three-fourths of Democrats, but also more than a third of Republicans. The findings raise questions about whether Republican campaign promises to ban policies at schools and workplaces that they denounce as woke could actually boost a contender in the party in the Republican Party's primary but put them at odds with the broader public opinion in the general election. Well, gosh, I hope so. Independence in this poll by 51 to 45 percent say that woke means being aware of social injustice, not being overly politically correct. And yet, boy, they are banking a lot on wokeness as their ticket back to power, it seems. Pollster Cliff Young of Ipsos said, quote, most Americans understand woke to be uh, tuned in to injustices around us. But for a key segment of Republicans who make up the Trump DeSantis base, he says woke is a clear trigger for the worst of the politically correct emerging emerging multicultural majority. 
That same poll, by the way, also in uh, addition to finding that, yeah, um, everyone's pretty much fine with wokeness. Uh, it also finds that Americans overwhelmingly oppose, overwhelmingly oppose by 76 to 21 percent efforts by state governments to ban certain books from school classrooms and libraries. Even as last year, the nonprofit group Penn America noted that uh, school districts in 26 states had moved to ban some books, often books that relate to race or gender identity. And yet the majority of the country is wildly against this. What are these people thinking? Well, they're, I guess they're thinking uh, it's going to help me win the primary, but is it going to help them win a national election? Not if these numbers hold up. The opposition to state bans crosses party lines, including 86% of Democrats, 78% of independents, and even 66% of Republicans oppose banning books. Good for them. But by all means, uh, Ron DeSantis, you should totally run on banning books, on CRT, on ESG, on DEI, and yet, above all, your record for being a uh, uh, an enemy, an enemy of woke in Florida, where woke comes to die. Because Americans, you know, they hate woke. They love your war on it. <laughs> Keep it up, Ron. Keep it up. Uh, and frankly, if pretend culture wars were the only thing that Ron DeSantis was wrong about, I probably would not be mentioning him today at all. That said, it is decidedly not the only war that history, I believe, will find Ron DeSantis to be terribly on the wrong side of, sadly and shamefully. That story and much more and Desi Doyne's latest Green News report is all ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. What's that song called? Fool in the Rain by Led Zeppelin. Fool in the Rain. Are you trying to say something about me because it's raining out today, Desi <laughs> Doyne? California. Is that what this is about? What a shocker to have more rain in California. <sighs> Will it ever end? Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. After years of complaining about drought, now we continue to complain about the rain. Of course. Anyway, back to the news today. Senator, Senate Minority Leader and Kentucky Republican Mitch McConnell was discharged from the hospital on Monday, according to his communications director, David Pop, in a statement. But, quote, at the advice of his physician, the next step will be a period of physical therapy at an inpatient rehabilitation facility before he re returns home, said Pop. So discharged from the hospital that seems to have received most of the headlines on Monday, while McConnell being checked in to a rehab facility for inpatient treatment. That may have received less notice. Um, how bad was this concussion that he uh, supposedly had? 
Over the course of treatment this past weekend, said Pop, the leader's medical team discovered that he also suffered a minor rib fracture Hmm. for which he's also being treated. The 81-year-old McConnell was hospitalized after he tripped and fell at a private dinner for his Senate Leadership Fund pack at the uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Washington on Wednesday and was treated for a concussion, his uh, office said. An aide told NBC News that McConnell was not expected to return to the Capitol this week, saying that it is, quote, very common to undergo physical therapy to regain strength after a hospital stay and that it ranges anywhere from a week to two weeks. So he could be out for as much as two more weeks, uh, as it sounds. Now, it's not unusual to undergo physical therapy to regain strength after hospital stay, but on an inpatient basis? I don't know. I, I honestly hope that that is right, that that is accurate, and this is normal, because frankly, and you probably have never heard me say this before, but I hope McConnell is okay, because I hope at this moment... Frankly, he is really needed in the U.S. Senate. And I'm sure you have never heard me say (laughs) that before. Why don't you explain? Well, I really hope uh, he is needed. For one, if for some reason he would not be able to serve, even though there is a Democrat who is now the governor of Kentucky. Uh, A few years ago, uh, McConnell engineered a, a, a new law in Kentucky that requires whoever is the governor to uh, if they have to fill a Senate seat, that they have to fill it with somebody from the same party. So, you know, Democrats are not going to pick up an advantage if for some reason McConnell can no longer serve. But the real reason that I'm concerned about losing McConnell right now to the Senate, he has been very good and aggressive in getting ahead of the rising campaign in favor of autocracy in the Republican Congress right now, particularly when it comes to support for Ukraine's attempt to hold off authoritarian Russian invaders. And I believe that's quite important. We're talking about a precarious moment right now for the banks. We're talking about a precarious moment for the world when it comes to rising authoritarianism and the precarious moment for democracy here in the U.S. The House Republican caucus has largely already fallen to the right-wing extremists. And Mitch McConnell, for the moment, may be the only thing that prevented that happening in the U.S. Senate as well. And yes, that does matter right now, as I was reminded Today, reading this news from the New York Times last night, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida has sharply broken with fellow Republicans who are determined to defend Ukraine against Russia's invasion, with DeSantis saying in a statement made public on Monday night that protecting the European nation's borders is not a vital U.S. interest and that policymakers should instead focus attention here at home. Because, sure, Hitler may be invading several countries in Europe, but the U.S. has more important things to worry about right now, I guess. It's not our fight, right? Let Europe burn. Oh, wrong war? Not necessarily. 
The statement from Mr. DeSantis, who is an all but declared presidential candidate for the 2024 campaign, puts him in line with front runner for the GOP nomination. That would be former President Donald J. Trump. The venue that DeSantis chose to declare his new position statement on a major foreign policy question reveals almost as much about the substance of the statement itself. The statement was broadcast on Tucker Carlson tonight on Fox. It was in response to a questionnaire that Carlson had sent last week to all major prospective Republican presidential candidates. The fact that he answered it, the Times observes, is tantamount to an acknowledgement by DeSantis that a candidacy is indeed in the offing, just in case there was still any question about that. He didn't send it back and say, well, uh, since I'm not running, I'm not going to fill out this questionnaire. (laughs) Correct. And of course, Tucker Carlson is rabidly opposed to supporting Ukraine. Indeed, on uh, Carlson's show, DeSantis uh, appeared and separated himself from Republicans who say that the problem with Biden's Ukraine policy is that he's not doing enough. DeSantis made clear he thinks Biden is doing too much and taking actions that risk provoking war directly between the U.S. and Russia. Carlson is one of the most ardent opponents of U.S. involvement in Ukraine, as Desi notes, and has described its president, Volodymyr Zelensky, as a corrupt anti-hero, which I guess makes Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Putin a not-corrupt hero? In Tucker's eyes? Don't know. Just so you know, that's what we're dealing with here with Tucker and uh, the number one show on cable news. Calling Zelensky an anti-hero. He's also mocked him for what he wears, for what he wears, claiming that he, quote, dresses like the manager of a strip club. Which is rich and courageous stuff coming from a guy who made his name bravely wearing a bow tie on television. DeSantis, in the statement read aloud by Tucker, said, quote, while the U.S. has many vital national interests, which he lists to include checking the uh, economic, cultural and military power of the Chinese Communist Party. Ah, okay, their military power, that's a problem, just not the nation that is actively invading a sovereign neighbor and threatening the whole of Europe with nuclear weapons. Got it. So the U.S. has many vital uh, national interests. A territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. So it's just a territorial dispute, according to Ron DeSantis, the one who the man who wants to be our next president. It is not a wholesale military invasion of a sovereign state by an empirical autocratic nation threatening to use nuclear weapons. Just a territorial dispute. Got it. Bad choice, Ron, but one that may help you be remembered by history for all of the wrong reasons, I hope. That said, DeSantis' views uh, views on Ukraine policy, well, they now align with Donald Trump's. The former president also answered Tucker's questionnaire and repeated his frequent fanciful riff that, quote, both sides are ready to make a deal. Trump has already said, as we noted last week on the program, that his plan, his secret plan that Donald Trump has for peace in Ukraine is to let Russia, quote, take over parts of Ukraine. 
in a negotiated deal, which totally sounds fair and equitable. You reward the invader by letting them keep some of the land that they invaded. That should discourage any such further incursions and wrongdoing. Am I right? Sends a great message to, I, I don't know, North Korea or China. How about China, the Chinese Communist Party, which Republicans pretend to be so concerned about these days? And yes, I'm sure that Ukraine is very eager for such a deal as Trump is, is claiming. That said, the position taken by DeSantis and Trump is at odds with the passionate support for defending Ukraine that has been demonstrated by some of the other potential GOP candidates, including Mike Pence, uh, former Ambassador Nikki Haley, former Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey. Oh, he's considered a potential again? Really? Hi, Chris. Who knew? T Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Uh, it's all uh, sharply at odds with most most Republican senators, at least for now, including, yes, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader who has aggressively, in my opinion, stayed ahead of some in his party on this in order to ensure U.S. support for Ukraine continues. Pence and Haley, uh, an ambassador to the U.N. during the Trump administration, have framed the fight to defend Ukraine as a fight about freedom. You know, that freedom that Ron DeSantis pretends to care about as he rips it away from Floridians and promises to do the same to America if he should become president. McConnell has cast the battle in Ukraine as one to defend the post-World War II international security order, and Mitch McConnell is right about that. All have pushed President Biden to do more in that battle, to send more lethal weapons and to do so faster in order to help Ukraine drive Russia from its territory. Joe Biden has been walking a delicate balance down the middle there. DeSantis and Trump have rejected such appeals to Biden, and their view is growing, unfortunately, in popularity among House Republicans and Republican voters who sadly too many in what I may start describing as the post-left in this country are now shamefully finding common ground with. Too many, I guess, who seem to have absolutely no memory whatsoever of World War II, much less understand the post-World War II order and all of those territorial disputes in Europe at the time, back in World War II. Yeah, Germany just had some, you know... Territorial dispute. Yeah, that's all it was. On the other hand, back in 2014 and 2015, when Vladimir Putin was in the initial stage of his invasion of Ukraine by annexing Crimea, DeSantis, who was then a member of Congress, sounded a lot more like those other Republicans. He attacked then-President Barack Obama for not doing enough at the time for Ukraine, just as many Republicans are today criticizing President Biden. Here's DeSantis as a member of Congress when he was in favor of supporting Ukraine before he decided to be against it. You know, we need to start uh, taking steps uh, to fortify our allies and, and make sure that Russia uh, does not, is not able to project power uh, like they are right now. What Vladimir Putin sees is he sees weakness. He sees a president that's not serious. And so he knows he can get away with things there. And I think if we had a, a policy which was firm, which armed Ukraine with defensive and offensive weapons so that they could defend themselves, I think Putin would make different calculations. And so I think Obama's policy of 
weakness is actually making a larger conflict more likely. Hmm. That sounds somewhat different from Ron DeSantis today, doesn't it? <laughs> Just a little. Other statements along those uh, similar lines from DeSantis over the years in 2015. He told then right-wing talk radio host Bill Bennett, quote, We in the Congress have been urging the president to provide arms to Ukraine. They want to fight the good fight. They're not asking us to fight for them, and the president has steadfastly refused, and I think that's a mistake, said DeSantis. I think that when someone like Russian President Vladimir Putin sees Obama being indecisive, I think that whets his appetite to create more trouble in the area, and I think if we were to arm the Ukrainians, I think that would send a strong signal to Putin that he shouldn't be going any further. I guess that was back when... Ron DeSantis cared about such things. In an interview from December of 2017, DeSantis continued to criticize Democrats for not sending more aid to Ukraine. Quote, a couple of years ago, Obama was refusing to provide lethal aid to Ukraine, said DeSantis on Fox News at the time. They viewed guys like me who are more of the Reagan school that's tough on Russia <laughs> as kind of throwbacks to the Cold War. Gosh, I wonder what changed. Of course, anti-Russia views are less popular with today's GOP base, which has conditioned or groomed, if you will, over the past seven years by Donald Trump and media figures like Tucker Carlson, uh, who have questioned why the U.S. should view Putin as a threat. What threat? Just a territorial dispute. Longtime Republican opinion writer Amanda Carpenter linked to the New York Times piece last night on Twitter, noting correctly, in my opinion, that, quote, this is Ron DeSantis's Russia, if you're listening, moment. But worse, she said, this sends a terrible signal to Russia that all they got to do is hold out until a Republican wins in 2024. All right, we've had a lot of uh, dark news here. Uh, before we take a break and get to our Green News report, yes. probably similarly dark, knowing <laughs> Des. Some encouraging news for our, uh, well, for everyone in the country, but specifically for our listeners in New Mexico. Hi, guys. The New Mexico State Legislature on Monday adopted House Bill 4, an omnibus voting rights bill known as the New Mexico Voting Rights Act, sending it to the governor's desk. Among many provisions, HB 4 enables people to vote while on probation and parole after leaving prison. This would immediately restore the voting rights of roughly 11,000 New Mexicans. And going forward, many others would regain the franchise upon release from prison. Though, as Bolts magazine notes, the uh, bill would not help people while they are still incarcerated as one day Hopefully, New Mexico will. HB 4 now heads to Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, who, suppo who supports it and is expected to sign it. When she does, New Mexico will become the 26th state plus D.C., where at least anyone who is not in prison can vote. Minnesota, as we reported last week, took this same step uh, just uh, earlier this month. Quote, this legislation is about welcoming people back and allowing them to participate in a functioning society, said Justin Allen, a New Mexico advocate who is himself formerly incarcerated. He said when people have a sense of belonging in the community, they're less likely to inflict harm on themselves and others. 
HB 4 was championed by Democratic lawmakers and every voting Republican lawmaker in both chambers opposed it. In the state, once considered to be a battleground, though it has become much uh, more blue in recent years. The bill also contains a flurry of other measures meant to strengthen voting rights in the state, including establishing Election Day as a state holiday and the expansion of ballot access on native land by requiring language translation at the polls, reducing the distance that people on reservations must travel to cast a ballot, and allowing input from tribes on where voting precinct boundaries are set. By the way, on that election day as a state holiday, I'm not sure I'm in favor of it, but I don't have time to explain why that is. <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad to say that, that they day. are expanding yes. access to the ballot for Native Americans on reservations, and yep. they don't have that kind of access that most Americans enjoy. It would also further automate the state's automatic voter registration system. Under the new program, the state would automatically register eligible New Mexicans whenever they enact, uh, in, interact with the Motor Vehicle Division. For instance, when they renew a license, these uh, new voters would then later receive a mailer at home, enabling them to opt out of voting if they wish. Currently, they already have automatic registration, but currently people are asked to decide immediately if they want to register when they're still at the motor vehicle division. Now, Colorado made this specific switch back in 2019, delaying the stage at which people are asked if they want to opt out. And that has apparently resulted in a dramatic jump in the number of registrations. Nice. State Democrats uh, had pushed similar voting reforms for years in New Mexico, but had repeatedly hit a wall. Last year, another package containing many of these reforms was derailed because it was filibustered into oblivion by Republicans. HB4 will also continue disenfranchising the roughly 5,000 New Mexicans who are imprisoned over a felony conviction. But it's all moving in the right direction, it seems to me. And uh, it seems the same to uh, Allen, who supports expanding the uh, ballot further to include incarcerated people in the future. He says he expects the HB4 bill will move the conversation in that direction. It's a big step towards universal suffrage, he said. These things take time. Indeed, they do. But it is nice to be moving in the right direction Indeed. in any event. Quick break, and we're back with Green News Report and Desi Doyen right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Okay, Desi Doyen, it's uh, it's your turn to ruin everyone's day. <laughs> I've had I've done my work. Well, my work here is done. Hang on, there's some good news at the end. Yeah, we'll see in our latest Green News report. This would completely encircle the community. 
in oil and gas. Biden administration approves controversial oil project in Alaska, but also prohibits other drilling in Alaska and U.S. Arctic waters. Plus, one of the strongest storms ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere may also have broken the record for the longest lasting tropical cyclone. In the Indian Ocean, Tropical Storm Freddy breaks a scary new record. All of those scary records and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We're producing no new gas-fired plants in Texas, for example. Texas. Texas is about to be 50% wind and solar. Wow, sounds terrible, Texas Congressman Chip Roy. You're welcome. This is your... Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, a lot of folks are very angry today at the Biden administration for what's going on in Alaska. A lot of other people are just delighted by it. Yeah, it depends on your perspective. Doesn't it, though? The Biden administration on Monday approved ConocoPhillips' controversial Willow Oil Drilling Project in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska's North Slope. The Interior Department approved a scaled-down version of the ConocoPhillips proposal with three of the five sites Conoco requested, and the company will relinquish all remaining drilling rights in the reserve. Alaska's bipartisan congressional delegation, state Leaders and some Alaskan tribes praised the project for its projected jobs and revenue. Other Alaskan tribes and environmental and climate advocates condemned it as a climate bomb, potentially producing 600 million barrels of crude over the next 30 years at a time when scientists warn we must drastically reduce fossil fuel use. On the other hand, what he's saying here is, okay, you can have these last three drilling platforms, but that is it? Basically, however, on Democracy Now!, indigenous climate advocate Sikhanik Mopan rejected proponents' economic arguments. Systematically, we've seen that small rural um, places like this, time and time again, have been in an economic hostage situation where they're told that the only way that they can get basic necessities like running water and plumbing and such um, is to sacrifice their health, their lands, their food security and so many more consequences from this project. Environmental groups are likely to sue to halt the project. The Biden administration, however, also announced sweeping new protections for 13 million additional acres in Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve and placed all U.S. Arctic Ocean waters off limits to future oil and gas exploration, which means ConocoPhillips' Willow Project might be the last ever within the reserve. Environmental groups welcome the new conservation action, but the Wilderness Society called it, quote, not nearly sufficient to blunt the impact of the Willow Project. Mm. The two moves are seen as Biden attempting to strike a political balance between shifting away from fossil fuels and combating climate change in the long term with short-term pressures to increase domestic production amid global energy disruptions caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. And, of course, to take away an election issue that could be used against him. But you know what? They're going to use it anyway. Yep. And in related news, also in Alaska, the famous annual Iditarod sled dog race is underway. And like in previous years, organizers are increasingly grappling with the lack of snow and ice, creating dangerous conditions Mm. as Alaska's snows disappear and its permafrost melts. 
Well, then by all means, let's drill more oil there. Off the coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean, unusually warm ocean temperatures have made Tropical Storm Freddy one of the strongest cyclones ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere, and it also set a new record for the longest-lived tropical cyclone in recorded history, going at more than 35 days and counting. Wow. Last month, Freddy killed dozens in both Madagascar and Mozambique, and over the weekend, circled back to hit Mozambique again. In other news, in the banking sector, the Biden administration is taking steps to prevent wider fallout from the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, which, it turns out, also financed a sizable chunk of climate technology startups and renewable energy projects in the U.S. Uh-oh. Finally, a sign of the times, Mack Truck, the manufacturer of big construction vehicles, has announced the first all-electric medium-duty vehicle with a maximum range of 240 miles on a single charge that reaches a full charge in less than three hours. Hmm. While it's the first EV medium-duty truck, it's actually Mack Truck's second electric vehicle offering after the debut of its all-electric garbage truck last year. Hmm. Well, I'm telling you... Anyone who hasn't noticed yet, we have hit the inflection point when it comes to electric vehicles in this country. It certainly seems like it. Yeah, and it's all downhill from here for the internal combustion engine, says me. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Check in. Got my chips cashed in. Keep trucking like the doodah man. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Yep. We have got to get the truck out of here. <laughs> My thanks to her, our producer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other that we have ever done, you can download them going back to the beginning of time at bradblog.com for free. That is made possible by those of you kind folks out there, thank you very much, uh, who donate to our efforts by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Please consider signing up for an automated monthly donation of any amount you like. It's really easy. Go to bradblog.com. It'll make sense. Thank you. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, and the Mastodons, I am simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Till we see you here tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Lately it occurs to me.